Well, good morning, everyone. Let's uh, begin by praying, shall we? <coughs> Heavenly Father, uh, we've come before you, before your words this morning, Lord, as your servants. Lord, as people that are in need of your truth, that are without you lost and helpless. And yet we have your word, and yet we have you who came to us. And Father, we pray this morning as we hear your word, as we've already heard it read, now hear it spoken about, Lord, that we would be willing and able through your spirit to hear what you have to say. Lord, we contend against uh, the kingdom of darkness. We contend against our own sin, Lord. But in your power, we will be set free. I pray that we can hear your truth this morning. And anything that is just gnat would be blown away. Whether we would hear you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I wasn't here last week. I was preaching away at Williamstown. Um, but I believe you have begun by asking a question that we find in Psalm 8 of what it means to be human. I think it's wise and a good question to ask. The world seems to be full of people asking this question at the moment. Who am I? What are we as humans? The question of identity is foundational, isn't it? In it resides our purpose, the boundaries of who we are, what we can and can't do, what we should and shouldn't be doing. And it gives us a certain knowledge of where we fit in this world that God has made. Not knowing an answer to this really in some ways is quite catastrophic. It affects us as individuals, as groups and nations, but all of creation. Like a puzzle piece that's been taken and put in the wrong place, hammered down to make fit, it causes damage not just to the individual piece, but those around it and to the picture as a whole. So let us be encouraged, I think, that we should be pursuing this question of what it means to be human. The problem is that the world, I'm sure you'll agree, is filled with so many different definitions and answers to this question. So many different paths on offer. Have you seen that image of M.C. Escher's labyrinth? Stairs going up and down and doorways facing sideways. It's a labyrinth of intersecting twists and turns. And this world is filled with answers to that question that promise or that have ever-changing information, always promising solution but never delivering. And just to think about walking and choosing a path to take 
when you don't know where it's going to lead and have no guarantee of truth and answer is anxiety inducing. I find it to be. But where is a person to go? What path should be taken? Which one will be true and lead to our destination and not have us living lives in the few years that we really have on earth of just going in circles around and around until it's all over or leading us to dead end after dead end? It's enough to leave you wondering at times if there is a true path at all in amongst all of the different options. Is there a true answer to what is humanity? Who am I? I know that you recently, uh, last week, heard a word from Ray concerning this question. And I listened to it as well this week and was encouraged by what he had to say. But what lightened my heart most was his encouragement to go to the word of God. Who knows better who humanity is, what our purpose is, than our creator, the one who made us lovingly, who can provide better definition, a clearer understanding than him. So how wonderful it is that we have this scripture, a map, as it were, to the insane amount of options that we have in this world that gives us a clear indicator of where the correct path is to find out who we are and how we fit into his world, into his picture, so that we don't waste our time walking in circles, filled with anxiety or stuck at dead ends. It occurred to me, though, as I listened to Ray's word, that there are times and places when the truth of God's word is difficult to accept. It's hard to endure, as though it leads us on a narrow road that is sometimes filled with joy to walk down. At other times, it feels like it is cramped for space, leading us through difficult spaces that squash us and squeeze us. But this squashing and this squeezing though painful at times and uncomfortable at times, is not destructive, is it? It is God's truth and his power to restore us back into shape, taking that mangled puzzle piece and restoring it from its misshapen hammering to mend us back into his image to his picture. And we can be encouraged that the work that he begins, he will bring to completion. But we must have faith that he is good and that the difficulty that he leads us through at times is good and definitely worth it. Enter through the narrow gate as we've heard recently, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction. And there are many who take it, for the gate is narrow 
and the road is hard that leads to life and there are few who find it. And I say all this this morning to encourage you because to stay on God's uh, path, his word for us, because this morning we have a difficult part of that word to listen to. Ray spoke on it in his word, though it wasn't his focus. I wish to speak on it further. Ray addressed mainly the glory that humanity has received from God in their creation, in our creation. And I'll speak on this a little as well, because it's an important place for us to begin, to start with and to hold on to. It gives us an image of humanity and creation as it was always meant to be. And if firmly held, I think is an encouragement and will help us endure some of that squashing and that squeezing, but it also gives us an understanding of what has been lost. That's the difficult topic this morning. of humanity being turned upside down. Before I go any further down that path, we should renew our understanding of humanity's glory, our created purpose, by speaking on the time before time, that mind-boggling period of creation where there was only the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Recently, I've been reading through John. And if there is a book where you were to ponder about the time before creation, John is it. Do you know that in that book, in that one gospel, it's astounding to note that the Father and the Son and their relationship comes up 120 times. You believe that? 120 times. And eight of them, it is described as a relationship of deep, Love for one another. That's what existed before everything else. The Father and the Son in love with one another. From before creation and onwards, they loved one another eternally. And it's a selfless love. The Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father Wholly and completely, sacrificially, because love isn't about self. You and I, whose lives are filled with beginnings and ends, can only wonder at the completion and the eternal nature of their love. But wonder and be in awe, we should be. For it's in this love that was in the beginning that all of creation came out of, that we were born out of. <clears throat> Another of Ray's, Ray's message last week was great, had some wonderful illustrations, and they'll keep coming up. <clears throat> but one of the illustrations that he had was that of his mother making a wedding cake for he and Bron's wedding. You remember it, all the fine icing details of the leaves a work of love that she had made, a work of love that she had made and then given to Ray and to Brom. And Ray likened it to all of the sheep 
and the oxen and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea being given into the care of humanity a part of the crown that we have been given. But I want to expand on that image and to say that all of creation, humanity included, is a part of God's, the Father's, labour of love to create a gift of us to the Son. We are a part of that wonderful gift of love given from father to son. Colossians says that for in him, that is Jesus, all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him, for Jesus. For him, you and I have been made. Created in his image, an image that has been shown to be all about love. To be just like the Father and the Son as they loved one another. To love God and love others. Isn't this the fulfillment of the law of God? 1 John 3.11 says that for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Now this is what it means to live perfectly as his created humanity. Created to be the bride of Christ. To delight in Jesus for all of eternity. Not the church. Not originally, all of humanity created to be the bride of Christ. And in the beginning of this world, it was just so. It was exactly this. Adam and Eve were placed in a paradise that had been prepared for them to live in, to thrive in. It was rich in every good fruit and every good resource that they could possibly have needed. And they dwelled there, naked before one another, because they had no shame, nothing to hide from one another, because they were able to love God and love one another, creatures of love. Nothing separated them from having those deep personal relationships with one another and God. And Genesis tells us that they walked with God daily in the garden. Can you imagine walking a life that is so in step with him? Where we can be in his presence and nothing needs to be hidden without fear or cowering because of sin. There was nothing to be repented of, nothing to hide, only joy and delight in his presence. These were the best of days, marvellous days for humanity. There are times where I think I've tasted a little bit of it in relationship with Catherine 
times where I've felt a deep love and affection, usually after having confessed something, a sin. And in that, she has responded with love in return. Something has been taken away from between us. But even this is only a taste, a small inkling of what it would have been like to have been in the Garden of Eden, of relationship between a man and his wife and of humanity and their God. But now with that wonderful image in our minds, we need to turn and consider its loss. It's not hard to see that humanity does not walk life in step with God any longer. We have fallen from this glory. Or maybe better said, that our glorious position and our purpose before God in this life has become corrupt and poisoned. For we still have that same calling resting upon us and from within us. We are still creatures created by him in his image, created for the purpose to love him. But now it has become twisted and battered and misshapen, like a mirror that once perfectly reflected his image. Now we are tarnished and warped like an old funhouse mirror. It's not long after creation in the passage we read this morning, it's not long after creation was completed, it seems that our crown of glory took on that rust-coloured decay. The story reads as though they had only just finished being given that one restriction of do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil lest you die. And Satan is there with lies on his tongue, It's a good thing, a good question, I think, to ponder and to ask what it was that that Satan said, what was his lie that tempted Eve from such perfection, from such delight to share in something else, something other, something that allured her from the paradise of truth that she lived in with God. And if we have an answer to that question, surely it provides something of an answer to us of what lies at the foundation of human error. Satan, crafty as he was, said, Did God say to you not to eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. From that first word until the last, last Satan is whispering cunning lies that undermine who God is in Eve's eyes. 
that he was a tyrant that would restrict Eve from every tree, that he was a liar and the fruit would not lead to death, that God was fearful, fearful that Adam and Eve would rise in power and become like him, becoming God themselves. And while he undermined God, while the image of God was decreased in her eyes, he lifted up another image for her to fix her eyes upon. A greater prize, that of being God herself. At first glance, I wondered if it was authority and power that was the great temptation Satan offered to Eve. It is, after all, a tempting thought to have the same knowing that God has, the same wisdom. And humanity certainly rebels against the idea of being bound by God's authority and his purpose for us. But in further thought, I believe it to be the very core of love that he attacked. He tempted Eve to love something other than what she was supposed to. He tempted her to love herself. It was this love that tempted her out of the bounds of relationship to God as we shared. We were created from his love to love him. Nothing else. Him first. And to change that is to change us. Is to corrupt who we are at our very centre and to utterly corrupt it does. With each word of Satan, Eve seems to be pulled ever so slightly further into his deception. First she adds to the words of God that she would not eat or touch the fruit which God never said. Then she shared in the temptation by justifying that sin to herself, as we so often do with our temptations. She does it first by looking at it. She looks at the tree and sees that it is good for fruit. Then she looks at the fruit and sees, gee, it looks good. It's a delight to her eye. And then she begins to think and ponder upon the wisdom that it would offer her. And Adam too, who seems to play a minor role, it says is standing right there, possibly hearing the same lies, watching what is happening and sharing just as deeply, biting just as deeply into Satan's lies as he does into that fruit. And in that dark moment, they don't physically die, it appears. But their eyes are opened. They become wise to sin. Yet their crown of glory, made up of a purpose and ability to love God and one another, it takes on an entirely different colour. It grows rusty. It grows pitted. For they stop loving others and being loved by others. Instead, they love now only themselves. 
humanity is flipped upside down. First, we see it in their marriage, how they treat one another. Adam, who first looked at Eve as she lay on the ground after being made, saw her and in that first instance said that she is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And Eve, who was made out of Adam's rib, made to be that perfect partner, that perfect companion. Two people that are said to have been naked before one another and not ashamed could no longer bear to be seen by one another. And they covered themselves, hiding themselves from one another. Not loving, but only loving themselves. Second, we see it in their relationship with God. Rather than walking with him in pleasure and delight, they hear the sounds of his footsteps in the garden, a sound that would have brought them so much joy hours before, the day before, and instead their reaction is fear. And they hide from him. No longer filled with abounding joy, they're filled with shame. They do not love God any longer. To love him and one another requires nothing to be between them, for them to be about the other person, but they are more concerned with hiding themselves. And that shame takes on the shape of clothing. And it becomes an obstacle between them that they will not lay down. And when God asks, who told you you were naked? Did you eat of that fruit? What does Adam do? And what does Eve do? Because they're both culpable of the same action. They justify their sin. It wasn't me, Lord. It wasn't my fault. I'm a victim. In fact, if you want someone to blame, it was the woman. In fact, if you want someone to blame, it was you who gave me that woman. Or it was the serpent. He did it. Rather than confess their shame and call out to the Lord because they love him and want to return to him, they close, they choose to love themselves by blaming other people. Now, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I have found this to be a very popular method in my own life when I'm caught in a transgression. It's not my fault. It's your fault. It's Catherine's fault. It's always the children's fault. As quick as lightning, Adam and Eve point the finger at people they once loved. At people they once were all about. Because of their shame. Even going so far as to blame God for their sin. 
what happened in that moment brings us to understand <clears throat> sorry brings us to understand a piece of our question what does it mean to be humanity now it tells us who and what condition we are in now post that pristine glory in which we were created we are upside down we are lovers of self at the cost of everybody else and this love of self drives us further and further and further from god this is the state of humanity post creation and pre the cross the idea of being upside down may not immediately be alarming to you there are so many artworks abstract in nature that you can't tell which way is the correct way children love being upside down rolling around and flipping hanging from everything you possibly can but humanity being described as upside down is not only apt but it is alarming Now, if we've not felt the squash and the squeeze of this word yet, it is about to come. For what reason does humanity now have on earth if it no longer serves its created purpose? What reason do we have if rather than being for God, now we are against him? When first created, God calls us good and he gives us good works to do and we were able to do them. But in the New Testament, Jesus says that we and all that we do is evil. That we are not for him. And rather than being used and described as a part of his bride or his children before accepting Christ. Humanity, an unrepentant humanity, is described as being an enemy of God. And we are described as being children of the devil. Perpetrators, not victims of sin. 1 John 3, 8 to 10 says, Everyone who commits sin is a child of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born of God do not sin, because God's seed abides in them. They cannot sin, because they have been born of God. The children of God and the children of the devil are revealed in this way. All who do not do what is right by God are not from him. Nor are those who do not love their brothers and sisters. Further, that precious gift from God of his creation that he has given into our care, it too has become corrupt because of us humanity has become a fountain of poison that spews death and decay 
upon all that we touch. Cursed is the ground, God says, because of us. This casts a dark light on our question, doesn't it? What is humanity? Crowned with glory and also sinners, enemies of God, children of the devil, worthy not of being saved but of being destroyed. Only by coincidence have I been reading recently a number of books around the time of World War II. Both books are biographies. One on a man called Winthrop Bell. I'm not sure if he's a relation, Ray. A Canadian MI6 agent based in Germany at the time post-World War I and through World War II. And the other, Dietrich Bonhoeffer a pastor and theologian from Germany during that same time. Both books describe the reaction of people outside of Germany after they hear of some of the atrocities that took place, particularly the POW camps. Can you imagine, what what do you think the reaction of people outside of Germany was when they heard this? Do you guess horror, disgust, abhorrence? Certainly horrible things took place. But if you guessed that that was their reaction, you would be wrong. Both books describe the reaction is total disbelief. They could not believe in the evilness of their evil that humanity could possibly do such things. Are we the same in our own disbelief? I wonder how we react to hearing that we are evil pre-Christ. Does your heart ache or does it rebel? Does saying, does it say inside of it, I am not that bad? It is not my fault. I'm a victim. Enemy, child of the devil. It's too strong a definition, maybe. And it is a strong, strong definition. It's hard to say. And I understand that it is difficult to hear because it is difficult to read and it is difficult to say in front of everyone. It's difficult in that it leaves us in a position where we are the bad guys. When we thought we were good, it leaves us in a position where we are not victorious, but instead in a position of total hopelessness and a pitiful state before God, and we do not want to acknowledge that. 
because to do so is to acknowledge exactly what Adam and Eve refused to acknowledge, their sin, and that they are ashamed. And it demands, in a way, a response. Much like our forefather and foremother, we do not want to admit to our guilt and our shame or the need of changing it. We don't want to give up on that new love that humanity has of ourselves. And a message like this shows that we made the wrong choice. That we are broken and without hope, it seems. But scripture is clear in its condemnation of a fallen humanity. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, if you find this hard to hear this morning, let you comfort you a little. You are not the only one. We are all uncomfortable in hearing this. And in fact, if the only, if what you are feeling at the moment is only discomfort, then God is to be thanked. When Jesus came to tell people of their sinful state, He says in John that they hated him for it because they did not want to hear this message and that they rose up in anger against him to only feel discomfort rather than a burning rage says something of the work of the spirit that has already taken place. But what of God, the one that we were created by to love, the one whom we hid from and lied to when we sinned, that we treated as an enemy and now rebel against before Jesus? What must he see when he looks on what once was his beautiful work of love? a labour of love crafted for the sun that's now filled with hate. His reaction to Adam and Eve is clear. In the garden, they are cursed by him. I will increase your pain in childbearing. The work of your hands in creation will become toil and you will wrestle with pain-filled weeds that will draw blood, thorns. But the most terrible of the words, I think, are the ones that he says to Adam in the end. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you will return. There will come a day when you will die, Adam. just as I said, would be the terrible result of eating this fruit, of breaking my law, of stepping out of relationship with me. But the way that it is described is the most difficult aspect to bear, for it describes the very undoing of creation. 
God who gave Adam the breath of life takes it back, takes away his sustaining power by which every breath is drawn and they are reduced back to dust. Something that was never meant to be. Yet is the punishment for being a sinner. And with Adam and Eve, they are then taken from the garden to never return. Sorry. I'm emotional, but not like that. They're taken from the garden to never return. And the rest, as they say, is history. Mankind multiplied. And I don't think we should be surprised that they then did evil. Within a handful of generations, God finds that there are none who are not doing evil. And that he regrets, it says, his creation. And he wipes out, with exception to Noah and his family, all of humanity. And again, after that, humanity multiplies and they build the Tower of Babel, an edifice to human pride. And God judges them again. And on and on it goes with war and fear and pride and lust and on and on and death. And God... I read the other day Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It says in one passage, You hang by a slender thread, with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it, and ready every moment to singe it and to burn it asunder. And you have no interest in a mediator, and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you have ever done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare us for even a moment. And we read that in the 1 John passage too, didn't we? Those not of God will be destroyed. Those that are given the eyes to hear, (laughs) the eyes to hear, the eyes to see and the ears to hear this morning, there is a great fear in this position. A great fear that we have crossed a line for humanity that has no return, that we have been caught out in our sin and will feel the consequences of what has been done. But that is not the end of our story. This is not the end of our story. I do not want us to lose hope at the end of this message, even though its focus is on the fall. We should lose hope in and of ourselves. But even as Edward spoke of the divine flames raging up at us. He spoke of a thread that holds us aloft. 
from falling into those flames. While our sins inflame it, so his mercy keeps us from falling in for a time. For a time, waiting. Waiting for him to do a work in history, in us personally, to show his love, to show his love to humanity, even though we do not deserve it. That he would send his son, the one that we betrayed, to endure those flames in our place. And to conquer sin, taking all of our shame and burning it up. Even in the garden, as Adam and Eve are being spoken to of their sin and hearing their consequences, the Lord dresses them in garments that he has made. Garments of mercy. A mercy that they didn't deserve. And he tells them of a day when the Son of Man will come and will crush the head of the serpent, crush the head of sin and have victory over it. He speaks of Jesus on the cross in our place, defeating death and dressing us not in our nakedness again for those that believe in him. We're not dressed in our nakedness again or in our shame, but in clothing of his own making, of his son's righteousness. Not because we deserved it or because we earned it, but because he is the Lord of love. Here is our hope. Another piece to the question that we've been asking, what is humanity? Crowned in glory, utterly fallen, and yet filled with hope in the Son of God. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work amongst those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses. And we were by nature children of wrath, like everybody else. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is the great hope. This is the great love. A great salvation given to great sinners. And while I hope to speak on this next time, next week, let us grow in our understanding 
even this week of humanity as we ponder the fall. Let us read and pray upon what we have shared and give thanks to God that this fallen state that we have spoken about is not the end of our story, not the end of humanity's definition, but simply the stage being made ready for the Son of God to make himself known as our Saviour. This morning's message is only a general overview of the fall, of what it means to be glorious, the fallen and the hope. And next week we will look more at that hope and in the weeks to come we'll look more at the nuances of what it means to be human. But in the meantime, let us pray and give thanks to the Lord and maybe repent as well for our sin and rejoice in the hope that the Son has given us. And then we'll sing a song of God's mercy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we have heard a difficult word and I pray, Lord, by your mercy that you have helped us to hear it. For it not to have been a message of one man and one woman's fall into sin, Lord, but our own. Where we stand before you. Lord, as people, before knowing you, that hovered over a pit of wrath, of flames, held by a single thread. But as I was reminded this week, what a thread that is. What a thread of your mercy that you would not simply have done with us, but would keep us and hold us until the day that we can be returned in glory to you. Heavenly Father, though, forgive us for our sin. Forgive us for loving ourselves rather than you. And thank you, Lord God, that even though we did not deserve it, you loved us. In Jesus' name, we give thanks and praise. Amen.